Welcome to the Elliot Confidential Podcast. I'm Chris Elliott here with my boy Aaron. Hey, Aaron. And now I'm your boy. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, good. Been a good week. Interesting week. And uh, we are in Pucón, Chile. Yep, we're in Pucón, which is south of Temuco and near the Lake Villarica. It's uh, about 600 kilometers south of Santiago to a place that people, you know, from the United States don't really think about going to. They usually go to Santiago and then they either go to Patagonia or they go to the Antarctic or maybe to Easter Island, but not here. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a locals place. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of locals here, but where we are, it's actually pretty shishi. It reminds me a lot of uh, Winter Park. A little uh, bit. A little bit. But it's, it's like Latin a, American. It's a cross between, between Winter Park and Lake Tahoe because it's got the lake here. And then also because it has a mountain with a volcano on it. I don't know. Name your favorite volcanic mountain in the United States. Somewhere in Oregon or Washington, I guess. Mm, yeah. But we've done so much, so we should not waste time trying to describe this place because I'm going to have photos. Uh, we Our question of the week. Well, our question of the week last week was, what do you do before you leave? And we had some really cool responses, so we'll read those soon. Our question of the week this week is, what do you do when you arrive at your destination? We would love to get your comments on that. And we're going to tell you what we do when we arrive, because we just arrived here in Pucón. And what was the first thing that we did, Aaron? Well... After doing our requisite, you know, 10 minutes of laying on your bed and being <laughs> grateful you're no longer in a car or a plane. Um, usually it's a car, you know, obviously. It's how you get there. For here, yeah. Yeah, for here. But after that, I mean, the first thing you need to do is you need to figure out how you're going to feed yourself. True. And the problem is, in a lot of these tourist destinations, you're definitely going to get taken advantage of by the restauranters. The people are like, hey, I've got a restaurant. I have really good advertisement. I've got all of this stuff. And the thing is, restaurants are not always the most reliable. Actually, when you get to a place, I think the best thing you can do is go to a grocery store. Which is what we do. Yeah. And what we did today. Which is today. what we did today. And exactly. What did we find? Well, you don't realize what the food like is until you go to the grocery store because yeah. a lot of the restaurants are sourcing from the grocery store, obviously. And wow, I didn't realize it, but here you have some really uh, good in-season, fresh and inexpensive blueberries, strawberries, mm -hmm. grapes, and uh, also- Avocados. Yes, and also raspberries and avocados. Oh yeah, everything's in season everything's right now. Everything's in season yeah. right now. And you see people selling enormous quantities of berries that in the United States you would think costs at least $25 and they're selling it for much less here, much probably less. a fraction. Yeah, it, it's uh, really remarkable. I mean, we're here, we should say, in the middle of summer. So everything is in season and very inexpensive. I don't know how things are in the winter down here, but right now uh, it's also very busy. But uh, the grocery store itself is not much to look at, but the food is really good. We bought uh, some blueberries and some grapes. And we ate and all we of ate it. Almost well as a couple of yeah, the blueberries were grapes. Better. Yeah, the blueberries really good. Anyway, uh, but uh, you know, and and that really is. I have to say, when I talk to people who are experienced travelers, they tell me the same thing. The first thing they do when they get to a destination is they go to the grocery store. The grocery store is how you figure out 
what the food situation there is like, what people want to eat, uh, what the locals will eat, uh, yeah. and also uh, maybe what's in season so that you don't end up ordering a fruit or vegetable that's not in season. Exactly. I mean, I remember just a couple of weeks ago when we were in Puerto Ayora, which is in the Galapagos, and everyone else was going to a turtle camp. And our experience, because we had to stay at a hotel, complicated, I know, but our experience of that day was actually going to the grocery store and seeing what they had. And wow, we did discover quite a few things. And going to the grocery store as you know, simple and easy and also banal as it might be in the United States because you're used to going to the same place every day, yeah. it's totally different wherever you go. It's a great discovery. So we'd love to know from you, what's the first thing that you do when you get to a destination? Do you unpack your bags? Do you go find your favorite restaurant? Do you go take a hike? The comments, as they say, are open and we can't wait to read your comments in our next podcast. But this week, we want to talk a little bit about Southern Chile because it's a really remarkable place and it's also very beautiful. And specifically, we had an experience going to meet the Mapuche tribe, which is these are the indigenous people that were here before the Spanish arrived. And it was really remarkable. Aaron, can you kind of go through where we went and what we did? Of course. Yeah, so the first place we went to was Puerto Saavedra, which is spelled with two A's. And uh, they have a beach there, which is pretty interesting. But also they have access to uh, a really interesting viewpoint that was eaten away by uh, essentially erosion. Beach erosion, yeah. Yeah, and that was very interesting to see because the ocean here is definitely not peaceful. No, even, even though it is Pacific. Call it the Pacific, it is not peaceful. The remarkable thing about this area is that it was hit really hard by a very powerful earthquake in 1960. And the earthquake claimed countless lives. And, uh, and I say that because I don't have the exact death toll in front of me right now, but a lot of people died. And there was an enormous tsunami that came in and destroyed the village. It completely wiped the village off the map. Mm -hmm. And it turned a river into a saltwater lake. Yes. And that's really where we spent most of our time, touring this beautiful lake uh, and then looking at the Pacific Ocean. There are these beautiful bluffs that you can climb on and overlook the ocean. And then not too far from there is where our Mapuche tribe lives. And they welcomed us with open arms, very friendly people, showed us how to make these uh, like fabrics out of wool and, and also showed us how to prepare food in the traditional Mapuche way. Yeah. What did you think of the Mapuche? I thought it was very interesting. You know, I think it's like going to Pennsylvania and seeing the Amish in mm -hmm. a sense. Um, it, it's a little bit different, but yeah, they have, they have their own language. They have their own culinary traditions. They have these traditional huts called ruka, and it, they're just grass sort of thatch huts. And um, it's interesting to be there because this part of Chile is really very beautiful. And a lot of Mapuche are tasked with a, a lot of different farming activities, mainly farming potatoes. 
Mm -hmm. So a lot of people here work in potato farming and it's kind of, it kind of has a vibe of Middle Earth to it. Yes, it does. The potatoes are not the kind of potatoes you and I are used to seeing in places like Idaho. These are small purple potatoes and the blossoms are purple too. So when yeah. you walk through the potato fields, you see these purple blossoms. And we had a chance to eat them too. They are delicious. They are very good, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mapuche cuisine is really, it's very simple, but very tasty. So they don't do a lot of, you know, nothing aflambe or anything. No. They use a lot of uh, vegetables, you know, onion, garlic, uh, potatoes, but then they also use seaweed. Yeah. We it, had a seaweed soup for lunch. Yeah, they have this seaweed thing. I forgot the name of it. But in any case, they, they use a lot of, diff of different variety, and also they've uh, adapted to modern uh, culinary imports from Europe. Mm -hmm. So, for example, wheat was not a big thing here. And actually, to your side, Dad, there is a wheat cake that they oh, make. Oh, that was good, yeah. And so what they do is they'll take uh, wheat berries, and they will boil them, and then they'll put it through a meat grinder. Yeah. Uh, ostensibly, you know, a clean then, meat grinder. And then they'll either uh, just form it and give it to you to eat, or they'll fry it. Yes. Ours are not fried. Yes, but, but they, we had fried ones fry. this morning. They do love to fry them, though. <laughs> and they are very good. Yes. They are very good. And they eat them for breakfast with honey and jelly, like a strawberry jelly. Yes, and they also, of course, have fry bread, which is, you know, pretty standard for, um, you know, cuisine globally. Mapuche were displaced from their land. Which is, I think, if you do an indigenous tourism experience, you'll hear the stories that they tell. Definitely worth hearing, because they talk about um, how their ancestors once owned all the land, and then the, the uh, you know the settlers came and then took the land from them. So they have interesting stories about how they defended the land, and then ultimately uh, how they ended up where they did today. Um, it's I think it's important for anyone to know about this forgotten history maybe the underside of chilean history is is the the story of its indigenous people every country has something like this mm -hmm. every every country has a maybe a displaced minority or an a native or indigenous tribe you can't say the word native in places like australia um, but they have people who whose stories haven't really been told aren't part of the history books and, but are still very fascinating. And really, the Mapuche are some of the friendliest people that I've met. They are, and their food is really good. So it, even if you aren't, aren't so keen on hearing about displaced people, go and visit them. And the view from where they are is just spectacular. Yeah, they live in a really beautiful part of the world. And I think that it's definitely a shame to just sort of uh, miss out on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I think it's, uh, they're just starting to really develop their tourism. And so if you get a chance to even just spend one night to go and see an Aruka, see them make the food, and then hear them talk about their culture, it's fascinating. I will say, though, that the uh, Mapuche, they have their own language, which is a very complex language, difficult to learn uh, as a second language. We met someone who's trying. Um, but they also love to talk and they have a different concept of time, mm -hmm. which I found really fascinating. 
They don't measure time in a linear way. Did you understand how they're, I, I mean, I'm still trying to understand. What was your understanding of it, Eric? My understanding of it was that they thought of cycles mm -hmm. in order to it, appease anxiety of oncoming and predictable disaster. Right, like earthquakes and tsunamis. Yeah. yeah. Because no one had yet imported the minute or the hour or any other measure of time. Right. So, of course, they didn't have measures of time. So the past is the future and everything repeats itself. N no, in a sense, in a sense, they believe that things that happened in the past will happen again, like tsunamis and earthquakes. Yes. Which is absolutely understandable in a place like this. Okay. Thank you for setting me straight. Anyway, it, it is a, uh, you know, different way of thinking of time. But when they're with you, they don't think of time the same way as you do, where you say, I have to run to my next appointment. They will sit there with you and keep talking for as long as you let them. And I had a, a fascinating conversation with one of the village elders. Actually, the president of the community stopped by to talk to us. And I'm hoping to write something about the village for an upcoming story but he was very very generous with his time so i'm mm -hmm. grateful for that yes so from there we went on to um Pukon. yeah we're here now in Pukon, and we told you what we did we went to the grocery store yeah we just got here there's a big volcano here it's called um it's called borcan villarica we're going to be doing some hiking there uh Pukon is easily one of the most scenic places that we've been to because it combines it as a beautiful lake and then it has a village, which is, you know, let's be honest, it's kind of touristy, you know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. got a lot of restaurants and gift shops and uh, outfitting stores if you, if you want to go hiking. But then if you look um, to the mountains, you'll see this volcano and it's got snow on it. It's now, bear in mind that it's the middle of the summer, so it's yeah. got, it has got snow, and it is so just shockingly gorgeous. Yeah. Well, the other thing to mention about this place is it's really cool. It's the middle of summer, and it's a high of 17 Celsius, Yeah. which is really comfortable. It's kind of an alpine vibe. Yeah, a very alpine vibe. You've got a nice breeze coming off the uh, lake, and... Um, you know, it's, it reminds me of so many places while really not reminding me of any one place particularly. The reason that it's got a, an alpine vibe for me is that a lot of the homes here are built to look like they're in uh, the German, Austrian, Swiss Alps. And the reason for that is that a lot of people came here from Germany, Austria, Switzerland. I'm not sure how many Austrians, but definitely from Germany and Switzerland. And so uh, it... it it looks like they, they brought their architecture with them. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the buildings, you think, oh, you know, I'm in uh, uh, St. Moritz or somewhere, you know, and I'm in the Alps. But of course, you're not in the Alps. Yeah, no. It's interesting because there is that architectural vibe, but also you're definitely not in Europe. But it also, it, the mountains sort of look like Europe too. It's very, very strange. This a, it's an uncanny feeling being here because it really is, it, you know, if you've traveled. Yeah, it's jarring. If you traveled a bunch, it's very jarring. Yeah, yeah. In our last podcast, 
we asked the question, what do you do before you leave? And we had some great comments from you, as always. Before we get to those, a reminder that this week's question is very similar to last week's question. It is, what do you do when you arrive at a destination? What's the first thing you do? Do you unpack your bag? Do you go get a drink at the bar? I don't know. What, whatever it is, we would love to know about it. Please let us know and we'll read your comment next week. So this week, we had a few people who wanted to talk about their pre-departure rituals. And George says, I have a checklist that's about two pages long. After I cross things off, I won't need or adjust the number based on how long I'll be traveling. I just check each item off as I pack. You can read all of George's comment on the site. He goes through kind of what he puts on the list and, uh, and how he uses it, which I think is actually very interesting because uh, some people don't even bother with a checklist and they should because they should know what they uh, need to take with them. For us, we don't really have a checklist and the reason why is because all of our earthly possessions are in our bags. So we don't need to remember something because it's all there already. Yeah. Ross says, before we leave for a destination, we try to work our refrigerator down to no contents. Smart move. We're never successful, but it does make for some interesting meals. (laughs) Yeah, you don't say. We also try to revisit our most favorite restaurants. I'm sure you will agree that some are more memorable than others. We may buy some small foods or drinks that are not available at home, provided that we can pack or carry them. You know what, Aaron? Uh, we do the same thing too. The uh, trying to get all the contents out of the refrigerator is really hard because sometimes you'll buy like a a jar of jelly, and you're just like, it's always just, a jar of jelly. We're not going to ever finish this. Yeah, and uh, then you have to leave it to someone you know whoever comes next yeah it's things like those condiments uh mustards mayonnaise jellies honey those things never get finished yeah like you just never buy them because while it's nice to have a bunch of nice things to put on your toast every once in a while you know it kind of doesn't make sense in the long run if you're traveling because if you're staying in a place for a week I mean, I think that I would be concerned for you if you were consuming an entire jar of jelly. Yeah, really not good. Lynn says, before I leave home, I stop the mail and confirm travel plans. I also download movies, shows, and an audiobook so I have distractions while flying. That is really a great advice. And I can't even tell you how many times I've forgotten to download some songs. So I listen to the same songs over and over again when I'm, you know, waiting for... I don't know, <laughs> waiting for my flight. Sam says, before every trip, I register the trip with STEP. A few days before, we load our e-readers with free library download books and magazines. Last thing I do is take a photo of the cooktop showing all burners are off. Mm. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good one, yeah. A bit of OCD, but better than wondering if I turn them off we're taxing for takeoff yeah that's the worst feeling or you could just get like an electric stove top <laughs> but you know yeah um the uh registering with step is very good advice because then the state department knows if you're going out of the country now, if you register with step and you're taking a trip in the country you've probably gone to the wrong website because you can only <laughs> use it for going out of the country but doing that allows the state department to know where you are so that if you're going to a place where you know 
Maybe there's a uh, there's some civil disturbances or a natural disaster. The embassy knows that you're there and they can go looking for you. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Thank you so much for joining us for the LA Confidential Podcast. We are coming to you next week from Montevideo, Uruguay. 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 So Uruguay. we will see you then and we'll have a wrap up from our trip down to Pucón and if we survive the volcano. Hopefully. All right. See you then. Ciao. See y'all.